Are you talking shift? We are. It's time for the We're Talking Shift podcast. Now, now, now. Here to talk shift, Lori Bischoff. We're talking shift. Hello, everyone. I'm Lori Bischoff, and welcome to the We're Talking Shift podcast. This is the place where we talk shift because the antidote to feeling stuck begins with shifting our thinking. Sometimes when we're really, really stuck, we've got to follow that up by going rogue and making a really radical change in our life. And talk about making some radical changes. Today, my going rogue guest is nationally acclaimed addiction expert and recovery advocate, Tim Ryan. Now, Tim himself is no stranger to addiction and this addiction crisis we're in. Heroin stole... half of Tim's life. And as if that wasn't enough, Tim also had to endure the heartbreak of losing his son, Nick, to heroin. Since walking out of prison, Tim's mission has been to help one addict at a time transform their lives, going from dope to hope. He is a really highly sought after thought leader and speaker on the opioid pandemic. He was invited by President Obama to the 2016 State of the Union Address. He currently also works for Transformations Treatment Center, and he's an advisor for Rehab.com, which provides effective addiction treatment options for people. He is the author of a book, From Dope to Hope, A Man in Recovery, which is a riveting read, let me tell you. He also runs a Man in Recovery Foundation, which uh, which is his organization that seeks to guide the uninsured into quality care. So I am so, so grateful to have this guy on my show today. Oh my gosh, we're gonna we're gonna have an amazing conversation. Welcome, Tim. I am seriously so honored that you have taken the time to talk with me about this really important issue today. So I'm I'm so happy that you're here. I'm blessed to be here. You know, you got to uh, take the time to get the message out there to let people know what's happening and that there's hope out there. So thank you for having me on, my friend. Absolutely. You know, you came across my radar um, a couple of years ago when my husband's entertainment company was working with you to develop and produce, uh, I believe it was an hour-long special, right, Be- uh, called Dope Man, which aired on the A&E yep. Network. Yep. Yes, last year it aired on A&E. Uh, it's basically a day in the life of what I do, and you can still watch it on Amazon Prime for four ninety five, and I don't make a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, you know, it, but you should, you really should, um, with all of the things that you've got going on, oh my God, and your foundation, I mean, we'll get around to all of this, it's, it's a lot, I don't know how you fit it all into a day, but I think, uh, I, I think so that everybody can, you know, understand exactly um, why it is you do what you do, let's just jump in and start with your story so that everyone can understand what's, what's led you to where you are now. So they will get the expedited version. You know, I was basically the, I'm 50 years old right now, and and I'm the guy that struggled with addiction from age 14 until age 44. And it was alcohol. It was cocaine for years. It was pills. It was ecstasy. It was in and out of recovery. And then it was ultimately heroin I picked up and struggled with that for the last 12 years. And you know, people think when people are in addiction that, that you're homeless and you say heroin addict, most people think homeless person on the corner, that's 5%. I was a very high functioning individual. I had a wife, I had uh, four wonderful children. We had a beautiful five bedroom house. I made a, a very good living at the peak of my addiction. I had an office in the Wrigley building in downtown Chicago on Michigan Avenue. Um, But I also had a $500 a day heroin habit. Um, Long story short, December um, 16th of 2010, I overdosed while driving and I hit two cars. I put four people in the hospital, one being a nine-month-old baby. By the grace of God, they were all okay. Um, If it was not for a drug called Narcan, uh, which reverses the effects of an opiate overdose, I would be dead. 
I was actually clinically dead on, on the spot there. They figured four to six minutes. It took five doses of Narcan to bring me back, but that also didn't stop me. I spent a week in jail, got out, and, and I was so delusional. I, when, they, when this accident happened, they never got blood or urine. So in my delusional mind, I'm going to beat this case. But, of course, it's my third DUI. It's my fifth driving on a revoke without a license. They found the spoon and syringe, and I think I'm going to beat it. And, and when I went and retained a lawyer, he looked me right in the eyes. He said, Tim, you're not beating anything, you know. This is your third DUI, your fifth driving on revoke. You were in prison two years ago for four driving on revokes in a year. He said, you're going back to prison. It's just a matter of how long. And I got to a point where I wanted to kill myself. But if there was a heaven or hell, I didn't want to rot there. So I just justified I'll go back to doing heroin. You know, I lived to use and used to live. About three months into fighting my case, I was, when you don't have opiates, you're profusely sick. Yeah, it's like having the flu times a thousand. You're hot, you're cold, you're vomiting, you're defecating. So I was taking a hot bath, and my 17-year-old son, Nicholas, walked in the back bathroom, and he said, what's wrong, Pops? And I said, what do you think, you idiot? I'm dope sick. And he said, not anymore, Dad. Today's your lucky day, and my son threw two bags of heroin on the counter. Mm-hmm. I got out of the tub, and I, I, I did them. And I felt good instantly. And I went in Nick's room and I said, Nick, what the hell are you doing? And he said, don't worry, dad, I'm just selling a little bit. I said, Nick, this isn't weed. This is heroin. And you know what this drug has done to me. And my son looked right at me. He said, well, dad, you're a successful drug addict. And I said, why would you say that? Well, we have a nice house. You have an office in the Wrigley building. You make a good living. In Nick's delusional mind, because I functioned, he thought I was successful. Three months later, I caught him doing heroin, so we started using heroin together, and that's how my 17-year-old son and I bonded. Um, I ultimately was sentenced to seven years in prison on October 30th of 2012. When I walked into prison, Lori, I, I weighed 158 pounds. I skin and bone. I was walking death. I mean, I'm six foot one, 205 today. Um, I could probably tend to lose 10 pounds, but I was in bad shape. And, and that's where I surrendered over. In Illinois, there's 28 prisons. There's two at the Therapeutic Drug Treatment Program. Uh, Sheridan Prison runs a Westcare Drug Treatment Program. And I did 13 and a half months there, and, and that's where I plugged into recovery. My wife of uh, 16 years of marriage, 18 years in a relationship, Shannon divorced me in prison. We lost our home in foreclosure. I displaced my wife and four kids. My oldest son, Nick, was in active addiction. I did 13 and a half months, got out. My former wife brought two of my kids to visit me every two weeks. Shannon picked me up from prison. Her and my mom had a little townhouse set up in downtown Naperville. I live in Naperville, Illinois, west of Chicago right now. And had this townhouse set up. All our furniture was moved in. Shannon had taken everything out of storage, moved it in. All my kids came over that night. We had dinner, and that's last time I was together with my former wife and four kids as a family. I mm-hmm. plugged back into plugged back into recovery. I went back into the technology space for three months and just didn't have a passion to do it. I'd set up some family support groups. Um, I called my mother and said, I'd like to borrow $15,000. And she said, for what? And I said, I want to set up this foundation, a man and recovery foundation. I'm going to live on a majority of it. I'm going to get the lawyers and accountants to fast track the 501c3. And she asked me one question because she knew I was doing the right thing. She said, are you going to pay me back this time? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, the money will be in your bank account tomorrow. And that's how it started at 19 months sober. My son, Nick, was in treatment for the fifth or sixth time. I went to meet Nick. He's now 20. And he's like, Dad, we got such a crazy story. You know, we used to get high together. And, you know, you're sober. I'm sober. What about me and you speaking in schools? And I'm like, Nick, I I love it. But you got to get into recovery. Oh, I will. 30 days out of treatment. Nick's back in jail. Uh, Did 45 days in jail. He got out. Shannon picked him up, took him to lunch and fed him and said, we're done. You're not coming to my house. You're not coming to dad. So I got to figure it out. My girlfriend and I are getting an apartment five days out of jail. 
I called Nick and told him to come to my house and get some Narcan. And he said, don't worry, Dad, I'm not on that BS anymore. And I believed him. Two days later, August 1st of 2014, Shannon called me at 6 in the morning and said, get out of bed. I'll be at the house in five minutes. Nick overdosed again. We shot to Hinsdale Hospital, ran into the emergency room. Tim and Shannon Ryan here to see our son, Nick. He overdosed. And 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. And, and I knew my son was dead. And I'll ask people, what was my next thought? And they'll say, oh, you want to get high? No, my next thought was I'll be at the 6 o'clock 12-step base meeting that night. And I went in to identify Nick, and obviously had to get Shannon. I'll never forget that scream. And my son passed away on my 21-month sobriety date, and I had two choices, go get high or go to a meeting. And I never thought of using it. I went to a meeting, but something profound happened is, is we were – you know, crying and screaming and whatever over Nicholas, Shannon said, you know, I hate God, blank God. He didn't answer our prayers. And I mm -hmm. said, Shannon, what I'm going to say is going to sting, but you need to listen to me. I said, maybe God did answer our prayers. It's just not the answer we're looking for. And we ended up laying Nick to rest Wednesday night, Thursday night. I went on with this big Narcan training event and in the front page of the newspaper, it said uh, anti-heroin crusader loses son to overdose. And in Nick's passing, my son laid the groundwork for what I do today. And two weeks later, Shannon and I, his mom, my, my best friend in the world, we had lunch and Shannon looked me right in the eyes and she said, Tim Ryan, for once in my life, I'm behind you a thousand percent. She said, I want you to run your support groups. I want you to run your foundation. I want you to help people because I don't want any mother going through what I went through. Heroin took you, my husband. It took our home and it took my firstborn son. When I met Shannon, we met at a management consulting firm I was working at. And Nick was three at the time as his biological father abandoned him when he was born because he was in addiction. So I adopted Nick and we had Max, Tanner, and Abby. And Shannon looks at me and she said, Tim, you know, I, I thought about what you said in the emergency room about God. And she said, it's really weighed on me. And she said, I truly believe God put Nick and I in your life for a reason. Had you go through your struggles, had Nick go through his for Nick to pass on to set the stage for what you're going to do next. And, and I'm just getting started. And, you know, in four and a half years, I've become a a force to be reckoned with in the drug treatment space and speaking and in this pandemic that we have going on today. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, you're right. That's such a, it's a phenomenal story. Um, I mean, in every sense of, of the word, I mean, the heartbreak that you've had to, you know, endure just, uh, you know, with your own experience and obviously with, with losing your son, um, and, you know, maybe had it been a couple of years earlier, you might not have had the strength, right, to, uh, absolutely. to not, absolutely. right? No, I would have been, I, I absolutely would not have. What a 12-step, you know, me going to prison, and I share this, I needed to go to prison. I needed to be sat down. I was a high-functioning person in addiction, but I had a very high pain threshold, and I thought I could buy my way out of things, or I'll start another business, or I'll go get a job. For me to make a couple hundred grand a year was easy, but all the money I made, and I made a lot more than that, I, it just fueled my drug and alcohol addiction. But no, everything happened the way it was supposed to, and you know, a lot of people don't know it. It got deeper after that because I had met my future wife, Kirsten. Now we started dating. Kirsten becomes pregnant. We have our daughter, Mackenzie. Four months after Mackenzie was born, Kirsten attempted suicide. So I had to, you know, deal with that. I needed a nanny because I'm working for a drug treatment center out of Florida. Um, I'm, you know, running this foundation, I'm doing all these different things. So I, I got her into a, a mental health facility in Florida and I'll ask people who was my nanny. Well, my nanny was this gentleman by the name of big perk, who was a former Chicago gang chief for 25 years. who was my cellmate for 13 months. Who's like a brother to me. And, uh, he took care of Mackenzie. I did what I did. Well, Kirsten came back. In the interim, my son's best friend, Adam, who had moved in with me, 
and was 10 months sober. I'd shipped him to Florida to work for my treatment center. I was opening a, a facility in Naperville. He came back five months later. I found Adam dead two weeks later uh, from a heroin overdose. So it's like I lost two sons a year apart. And my wife had two more suicide bouts. But what we found out was she is undiagnosed bipolar. So that showed me the whole mental health acts aspect of addiction as well. You know, it's not just drugs and alcohol. Most people have a mental health issue behind the scenes here. And, uh, you know, we not only need to treat the mental health of uh, the substance abuse, we need to treat the mental health as well. Right. So, so in, in all of your, uh, experience now dealing with, um, you know, intervention on this, on the other side of this issue, is there one common factor that seems like it's the major usual cause for somebody to become an addict like mental health or, or is it just a a variety of things depending on, you know, each individual, do you see a common denominator? Yeah. So God, that is a brilliant, brilliant question. I've racked my brain around this because I came from a really good family. My dad worked at the Chicago board of trade for 26 years for a little company by the name of EF Hutton. He, Mm. he was senior vice president. He ran the whole country. My mom helped co-found a a company called market day out of a garage, which turned into a multi-billion dollar nonprofit. We had dinner every night at six 30, So I couldn't figure out where I went wrong until I saw a gentleman speak in Chicago about three and a half, four years ago. And I tell all your listeners, if you have questions, look up the name Gabor Mate, M-A-T-E, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's out of Vancouver, British Columbia. He's been working with people that struggle with substance abuse disorder for over 40 years. And Dr. Mate, when he meets with someone struggling in addiction, he doesn't ask why the addiction, he asks why the pain. What is the underlining pain and or trauma that keeps causing you to do do what you do? He said, forget this choices and disease, it all has to do with trauma. So I started looking at my life. Now there's my dog barking. I started looking at my life looking at my life and and saying, well, what trauma do I have? And then Dr. Mate asked a question. There was about 300 people in the audience. He said, how many people here are adopted? And about 20 of us put up our hands. He said, do you realize you're 48,000 times more susceptible to become an alcoholic or drug addict due to the abandonment issues? And then I looked at my life. I was a kid with, you know, learning disabilities. I was a slow kid. I was a stupid kid. And I got picked on for being in the, in the slow classes, 1.4 grade average, 11 on the ACT. I had an older brother that beat me up every day for eight years, and I had a female babysitter molest me at 12 years old. Boom, there was my trauma. What was my solution? Drugs and alcohol. So when I guide and direct people into treatment, you can take away the alcohol or the drugs, but you've got to get down to the underlying trauma causes and conditions, because if you don't, people are going to go right back out and start using again. Sure. That's, I think that's really, really fascinating because you're right. It seems like, it just seems like for the most part, there's got to be some reason, even if it's likely a subconscious issue, people maybe aren't aware it's not up in the front of their consciousness, you know, maybe they've buried it, but there's got to be some compelling force there that is causing this, this, uh, pain that maybe they can't really wrap their consciousness around, but there's something there that's driving them to want to do something to make them feel better about some sort of invisible thing. And a lot of times I'm sure they do know what it is, but there's probably a frequent. uh, You know, a lot of, a lot of people compartmentalize things and I compartmentalize being molested. That didn't come back to me until I was in prison and had over a year clarity. And it just hit me one night. I popped out of bed I remembered it like yesterday and I'm like, wow, I just compartmentalized that. But it either has to do with emotional loss, which could be loss of a family member, a parent. It could be a divorce. It could be physical. It could be emotional. It could be sexual or it could be spirituality. And a lot of people are, are broken in many different areas. And 
what Dr. Mate says is, is you've got to learn to, to be with your pain, but then you've got to learn how to walk through it. And a lot of people just mask the pain. And, you know, I, I did an intervention, I don't know, eight months ago with a, a gentleman and 58 years old, I walk into his house and he pulls out a five gram rock of heroin. He's like, this is my best friend, Tim Ryan. And he had saw my, my TV documentary and I did the intervention six hours later, he agreed to go to treatment. Well, the next day I met him at a private airport and escorted him to treatment in his Learjet. And the gentleman makes $50 million a year, has houses all over the country and he's crying and he's like, I just don't understand this. And I said, look, you are driving your life by drugs and alcohol. That is what has become your happiness today. You have all these materialistic things. You have money, but you are the loneliest person in the world. And until you can learn to live without those drugs and alcohol, you're never going to be happy. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And don't we see that all the time with high profile people, celebrities, you know, that have the resources to have, like you say, materialistically everything at their fingertips. And yet, you know, they they are been dropping like flies because there's something else. There's some other void that that kind of stuff just can't fill or heal. And it's, but well, you, you, you know, you, 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 I hate to cut you off. I, I had a gentleman I met in the rooms of a 12 step based program probably 20 years ago. And this was a former professional football player and he had a really nice insurance company. And when I met him two years later to the day he committed suicide. And when you sign a life insurance policy for two years, you can't kill yourself. It was two years and one day that his policy matured and this gentleman committed suicide. Granted, he left his family $16 million, but it was heart-wrenching. And, and what we found out was this gentleman could not handle not being in the limelight anymore mm -hmm. um, and, and, and just being an average person in society today and obviously couldn't stay sober, so thought it would be better to commit suicide. I work with the gentleman, Randy Grimes, who played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from 83 to 93. And, and Randy was Texas, you know, Friday Night Lights, Baylor University, met his beautiful wife there. She was a cheerleader, never had a drinking or drug problem until he entered the National Football League. And a couple of years in, he got injured. And if you're not playing, you're not getting paid. You will be replaced. And he got highly addicted to benzodiazepines, Xanax, and opiates. And after a 10-year career, he got a pat on the back. Mr. Grimes, your services will no longer be needed. And that was it. His career was over. And he's like, hold on, this is how it ends. And he struggled for another 18 years, finally got sober. He's 10 years sober now. But, you know, Randy brings up an interesting point. He says, you know, it wasn't the running out on the field and, and playing in front of a hundred thousand people I miss. He said, what I miss was the camaraderie in the locker room with the other guys before and after the game. But he said, I have that camaraderie back in my life today through recovery. And sure. it's people finding their, finding their purpose in life and realizing you got to be comfortable with who you are um, without having to alter your mind. Exactly, exactly. And I think you're right. It is so much about finding your purpose. And that's, you know, that's going to be different for everyone. And I think uh, the other thing, uh, what you just said was he needed um, connection. He needed to find a way to connect with other people that was uh, a healthy replacement, you know, for for his teammates and connection is, you know, it's one of the most powerful human needs. And so it's really, really important that people have some sort of a connection with some other human beings, you know, whether it's a tribe of two or a, a tribe of, you know, 200, but you got to have it. You really do. Yeah, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. What people need is compassion and they need connection. And it's simple as that, but people, like when I, you know, gravitated into the, into the heroin world, you know, I was 14 months sober. I was going to a 12-step based program, but I, I never worked at Steps, got a sponsor. I like to play my own God. And 
I'm the guy that thought I could get sober through osmosis. And hmm. I ended up taking a guy to Chicago to move out of his apartment and his roommate was doing heroin. I'm like, yeah, I'll try one bag. And that turned into a 12 year connection. But I was also the guy that wore the mask. I went to work. I could negotiate million dollar deals. Um, but I'm, I'm doing heroin all day long. Heck, I ran 35 Cub Scout dens with my neighbor. I was a pack master. Nobody knew, but the hardest thing for me to do was put my hand up and ask for help because I thought money, I thought things, uh, a Harley, a boat, all these things would make me feel good. And I was a whole of a person. I tell you, when I finally walked into Sheridan prison, I was the happiest person ever to walk into the Illinois Department of Corrections because I knew the gig was up. The way they ran my sentence, I knew I was going to do a year and a half, maybe two years. I didn't realize I, I was going to get good time. But that gave me the time to, to plug into recovery, to read hundreds of books, Tony Robbins, Napoleon Hill, you yeah. name it. I read it and, and I worked on bettering myself. And what I realized is my purpose in life today is helping other people get on this road to recovery. And my 35 or 38 years of my active addiction were my training ground for what I do today. But my, the more I give back, the more I get in return, not financially, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Um, and I have a life beyond my wildest dreams today. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think um, that's the, what you said right there too is so, so key because it really is about, um, how do you, how does each individual find that thing that, you know, that fulfills them, that, that, you know, makes their heart expand. And, um, if you, if you haven't had the time to be still and be quiet and think about, um, you know, what that is for you, what, what is that calling for you? Your people are searching externally for it with all these other things. Everybody's searching for it in their own way. And it's just a matter of not just a matter, but what kind of a vehicle are you going to end up jumping into that you think is going to get you that feeling? Because even the materialistic things and all the, all the wonderful things that money can buy, the reason that people want all that stuff, right, is because they think it's going to make them feel a certain way by having those things. And, and, and it, you, look, you yeah. look at the person, my brother, um, who's, who's in recovery, but what Kevin, my older, my younger brother, like to buy stuff and he would go buy all these under armor shirts or this and six months later he's coming to me to my house with this bag full of clothes and i'm like what are you doing oh i don't i don't need this i'm like kevin this stuff's brand new whether it's shopping it's sex it's gambling and you look at the younger generation today when we were kids me and you your husband, hey, you know what? I'm going to my friend's house. We rode our bike 10 miles. We went to our friend's house. We were gone all day. Be home when the street lights on or be home for dinner. Today, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, we're, kid, families are raising their kids through technology, through these iPhones, through uh, Android phones, through iPads. Kids don't know how to communicate. The next time your husband takes you out to dinner, walk into that restaurant and I guarantee you you will see that family, mom, dad, and the two kids having dinner, and they're all on their cell phones. Oh, absolutely. It, 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 it's, it's insane. It, it's absolutely insane. And kids don't know how to be kids. You know, we just got a half a foot of snow, and I'm waiting for one of the neighbor kids to walk up and say, can I shovel your driveway? Guess what? It's not happening. Kids don't <laughs> do those things anymore. It's, I can relate so much to what you just said and you're right. That is exactly how we grew up. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> it was a different time. Granted, you know, we had four, four channels on the television and there was no such thing as a remote. You actually had to get up and walk across the room to change the channel or the volume. And since most of what was on was boring for kids, you spent all your time outside playing with your friends and you're right. You were home for dinner. Family had a dinner. And, you know, and you were all present, at least, you know, even if the communication was lacking a little, but everybody was present. You, your body wasn't there while your mind was somewhere else, you know, plugged into something you were looking at in the palm of your hand. And I think it is, and, and, and again, loss yeah. of connection. 
it's all connection. And you actually had dinner and, you know, my, my dad would tell us stories and I can remember he would go on a business trip and come back and bring us a little trinket, but we would sit down as, as a family and talk about his trip and he would come in and, and tell us stories every night. And I just don't see a lot of families doing this anymore. And th- these homes I walk into to help, these kids are getting younger and younger. And, and here's another major issue. You know, there is a pill for everything. You can't sleep. Take this. You got anxiety. Take this, this. There is a pill for everything. And what people don't realize, 90% of the world's prescription pain pills, 90% made are used in the United States of America. And we're 5% of the world's population. If that doesn't tell you something, you know, big pharma, you can thank for a lot of this mess. Um, Oxycontin coming out in 1996 and just fueling this epidemic. And it, it's still happening now. And mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. man, it's it's just heart-wrenching. It's, it's heart-wrenching. Fr- yeah, it is. It is frightening um, as you just watch what's going on and you see the evolution of, um, you know, of what's happening with kids, like you say, at younger and younger ages. I remember, um, oh, probably about 18 years ago now, um, Eric and I started talking about this when we you were hearing more and more about, you know, the school shootings were starting and, and you know, I think it was Columbine and some of the some of those first early ones that just shocked you to your core. And I remember then we were talking about, you know what, what is going on that people that young kids, their brains have been so rewired that, and they've disconnected so much from humanity that they can go out and perform these acts. And really, I mean, what is there another answer other than the pharmaceuticals? I just, it seems like, you know, all signs point, all roads lead to that. Most of them. Well, you you know, it's interesting because I did an event last summer in um, Iowa, and it was a big disaster recovery event. I I was the keynote speaker for an hour and a half, and then the afternoon keynote speaker was the principal from Columbine High School. Mm. And that man's story and what he saw and experienced is just so traumatic. But just look in the past week, uh, they just caught the kid yesterday in Louisiana, shot five people, shot Mm -hmm. five people, shot 10 people, you know, um, a a lot of it was the kids being, and I was a parent that did this with with my son, Tanner, who's 19. Tanner was uh, raised on a damn computer and yeah, we went water skiing and we did all this, but he, he was a gamer and that was his life. And I look at Tanner now and the struggles he had going to alternative schools and this because of that damn computer. And now he's in welding school. He's doing really well and graduates in March and and looking forward to getting out. But the technology, and I also have a friend of mine that promoted a lot of big name rap artists. And and he said, Tim, unfortunately, the rap artists were, were a big part of this when we are promoting drinking lean and and popping Xan, Xanax bars, and eating Molly. You know, we glamorize these things, so of course kids are going to gravitate. Oh, they! but look at all the little peep and all these rappers that are dead from drug overdoses. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's just, there's no other word for it. It is gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. And you just feel for, you feel so much for, you know, the journey that that poor soul went through and then, and now the, you know, the wreckage left behind of their families trying to figure this out and deal with their own sense of, you know, of maybe guilt or blame and how, you know, how they try to heal to move on. It's, it's gotta be just a monster well, to you know, wrap your head around. You know, so, so since my son Nick passed away, August 1st of 2014, I have attended over 140 funerals. Um, I just talked to a mother today who lost her one son two years ago and called me about her 24-year-old son. And she's like, well, he overdosed Saturday night, but, but I don't think it's that bad. I said, hold on. Your son just overdosed on heroin. 
well, I don't think he's doing it all the time. I, I said, you have to stop. Quit trying to minimize this. Normal people don't overdose on heroin. 90% of the people that get into opiates will never get clean and sober. They'll end up dead or in the prison system. And we're getting them set up to go to treatment. I'm going to go do an intervention. And she's like, well, he really likes his job. I don't want him to lose his job. And I said, ma'am, mm-hmm. with the Family Medical Leave Act, he, he can take off work. They won't know, but you've already lost one, son. Do you want mm-hmm. to bury another one? I said, the most important thing now, job or no job, is getting your son into a long-term treatment program and then getting him in the proper aftercare, whether it's six months or a year, in a structured sober living community so he can have this gift of recovery and he doesn't end up dead like your other son. And, you know, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. heart-wrenching. And why, do you think, Tim, why do you think, just let me ask you this before I lose it, why do you think that she is so afraid to kind of take that stance with the remaining son that she has after she just, what she just went through. Why is she so afraid? Parents want to minimize what happens is parents want to love their children and you're going to love your children to death. What what I tell parents is if you baby them, you're going to bury them. Um, It's it's as simple as that. And, And this is a demon that you can't explain with the fentanyl out there, which is a hundred times stronger than pure heroin, which is flooding the streets, one, three grains of fentanyl can kill you. Your son gets one hot bag, he's dead. And I tell families, and it's difficult, I say, you have to take your emotions out of this. And you can't. So a lot of times when I get the loved one into treatment, I'm getting the parents into a into a treatment program for their, themselves because um, a lot of parents are part of the problem. They, and they, it's like, I, I look at my son, Nick, he, when I got out of prison, his mom wouldn't let him stay there. His grandmother was letting him live at her house. And my daughter was over there doing laundry and Abby was 12 at the time. And she called me and said, dad, you need to get Nick out of grandma's house. I found a, a pile of heroin on the washing machine. If Mm. my daughter would have carried her wash down and had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that she made and set it on that pile of heroin, thrown her wash in the washer, picked up that sandwich and ate it, it would have killed my daughter. And I called my mother-in-law and I said, you have to kick Nick out immediately. Oh, well, I can't kick him, kick him out. He's going to die. No, he's going to die in the bedroom of your house. He, He has a hot shower. He has a fridge full of food. He can steal your car take your money, come and go as he wants. There's no consequences. I wouldn't change either. I have no reason to. Mm -hmm. And even when when Nick died, Shannon, my former wife is like, well, maybe I should have let him come home. I said, Shannon, Nick would have still done the same things. And when my son died, people have this big misconception that you need to shoot heroin. My son never shot heroin in his life. He snorted it. And he had snorted two bags of heroin, and one of the kids gave him a, a Xanax bar. And about a half hour later, they knew Nick was overdosing. Instead of calling 911, where we have the Good Samaritan law, the police would have come, paramedics revived him, taken the drugs and left. Nobody gets arrested. They put him on the sofa, went in the basement, did more drugs, forgot about him, came up an hour later, and he was dead. You know, that's what happens all the time because people, when I speak in high schools all over the country, it just blows my doors off that they are not educating these kids about the Good Samaritan law. And that is where if we're using together and somebody overdoses due to alcohol or drugs, you can call 911, the police will come, rescue the person, take the drugs and leave. Nobody gets arrested and we're not even educating our children about this today. It's absolutely insane. That's crazy. Due to this, yeah, not not our town, not our community. We go to church on Sunday. So what? You're not with your kids twenty four seven. You're yeah. not. If you want to, if you want to know what your kids are doing, get into their damn technology. Look at their Snapchat. Look at their Instagram. That's where kids are doing everything today. Don't yeah. let your kids have. Don't let your kids have passcodes on their phone. You better know what's going on. Put monitoring software on there. And a mother's intuition is if something's going on, something's going on. It's as simple as that. 
Right. Yeah. Your intuition usually will not steer you wrong. Um, That reminds me, I have a a question that somebody had asked me uh, knowing that we were going to be talking. Um, And and this was a a friend of mine, an old friend. And uh, her question is, someone very close to me is getting eaten up by this opioid crisis. I can't seem to reach this person. I'm having trouble with where my moral responsibility lies. It would devastate me and others close to me if this person dies. And I live in constant terror of that. And I think that's probably another big question that a lot of people have about their moral responsibility. Is it their business? You know what I'm saying? Um, 100%. Absolutely it is. If you know someone is using, it's like I use the analogy, my son Nick had been to treatment five or six times from 14 years old till 20. If we would have told the neighbors, hey, Nick just got out of treatment. If I'm not around, keep an eye on him. Let us know if people are coming over. But people keep it this deep, deep, dark secret. If you know someone's using especially opiates, damn it, say something. Because if that person dies, you're going to live in I could have, should have, would have. And there's nothing you can do when someone's dead. Um, And, you know, when I speak in high schools, I'll bring this up. I'll say, how does that saying go? Snitches get what? Stitches. And all the kids (laughs) will laugh and I'll say, that's that's the biggest bunch of crap in the world. 95% of the people that get arrested snitch within the first hour. It's called cover your own ass. So I'll pull up two kids and I'll say, all right, Mark and John. This is your friend, right? Yeah. What do you do if you see John going down a slippery slope? Well, well, I'll talk to him and I'll say, you know what? That's what my friends did to me. And I told him I was fine. What do you do if you see it happening again? Well, you know, I don't know. You know what a true friend would do? They'd snitch on him. They'd escalate it to a school resource officer, a parent, a teacher. They might be mad at you now, but you might be the catalyst to saving their life. You know, and and we've got to talk about this more. You know, nobody grows up. I tell you, I didn't grow up and say, I want to be an alcoholic and a drug addict. I wanted to be a professional water skier and a stuntman. Not in a million years did I want to struggle with addiction, but I turned my wife into my manipulator. I manipulated my wife and everybody else in between and got her to co-sign my BS. Mm. Yeah. It's just, yeah, what a, it's. It's a whole world that's existing and getting worse right before our eyes. And I just think, um, I mean, for you to be doing what you're doing is, I don't even have a word for it because it's so amazing. And I, I, I would love to hear what I, what I really want to ask about is, you know, obviously your big turning point was when you had no choice and you were stuck in prison and you no longer had access. Right. So all you could do there was either, you know, you could either just sit and, um, do your time. Go through the motions. Exactly. Right. Or Or you could do what you did and, you know, and the turn, there was, there was two turning points when I was in Northern Illinois receiving center, I I was profusely sick for two weeks. I didn't sleep a wink for a month. And about two weeks in, I looked up and I, I said, God, higher power, whatever's up there, please take away this obsession and compulsion to use. And and please let me get into Sheridan prison and I'll turn my will life over to you. And the next day I was transferred to Sheridan prison. The second moment that really hit me was about a month in my Shannon and and two of our kids came for the first visit and you visit for two hours. And after the visit, I got taken back to my dorm cell, whatever. And I was looking out the window and I watched my wife and two kids drive away and it hit me like a thing. I mean, I could cry right now. It hit me like a ton of bricks going, how could I do this to my family? How did I get here? I, I'm never going to put my family through this pain and shame and guilt again. And that's where I really plugged in. You know, my 20-year-old son, Maxwell, who who's literally my full-time driver, he videotapes my speaking events. We travel the country together because I haven't had a driver's license in 18 years. <laughs> Max had said something that just tore me apart. He when we lost our home, they had to change schools and he had gotten some trouble. I think he was a sophomore or a freshman in high school. 
And the principal said, hey, you know, we need to call your mother and have a talk with her. And he said, look, you know, you can't call my mom. She's working full time. And, well, we need to call your dad. And he said, well, you can't call my dad. My dad's in prison. And Ouch. how humiliating. And, and man, it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I I just can't ever live that way again, you know. And, and you know, my I, I've got to be the best father to my kids today. And I can't change the past. And. I've got a great relationship with all of them and I have three stepkids and, you know, my former wife's my dear friend still, and we all have Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving together with Kirsten, my new wife and Mackenzie, my three and a half year old daughter. And God called one home and blessed me with another kid. And everything I was searching for in life through drugs and alcohol has been right here, but I needed to find my purpose mm -hmm. and my purpose is doing what I do today. And it's not easy. And, Something else I wanted to hit on, when I walk into a home or I'm dealing with the family, I am dealing with sickness and toxic constantly. So, you know, last April, I went on a, uh, a spiritual retreat out to Los Angeles, and, and we had a, a Buddhist monk come in and work with us and breathing exercises and how to meditate. And I apply all these things in my life today because people see me, oh, we saw you on Fox and Friends, or you were on CNN, or you wrote up in Real Leaders Magazine again. And yeah, that's all great kumbaya, but I've got to have my mind, body, and soul in balance doing what I do, because if not, it will bleed out onto my family, or I'll be the guy that'll pick up and start using again, and that's not an option. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm so glad you you brought that up because it was actually the next thing, too, that I wanted to talk about was the role that you know, God or spirituality uh, played in your um, in your turn, you know, from from being an addict to to being clean and sober and then um, ultimately really becoming of service, which turns out to be your purpose. Um, so that must be have been when you were in prison and you were still, you were learning about, you know, according to the things you said you read. So you're learning about all the, you know, the self-improvement, the personal growth. Um, did you read, how did you also get to the point though, about leaning into your higher power or God? So, how, yeah. So, so God to me, God was a gift of desperation. I was desperate mm -hmm. enough to to put my hands up and say, I need to quit living Tim Ryan's will and, and try to live God's will. And I live my son Nick's will to the best of my ability. I don't know what God is. You know, I, I, I tried to read the Bible a number of times. I don't comprehend that book for anything. I need to keep it simple, but I do get on my knees every morning and I pray. I always have, even in addiction. I get on my knees every night and I pray and I have more of a spiritual relationship than a religious relationship. Um, my, my little saying with that is uh, religions for people that are afraid to go to hell, spiritualities for people that have walked through hell. And I've walked through hell. Um, but, you know, I read a lot of books on cosmic healing, karmic energy, you know, spirituality and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I, I stole um, a 10 to 12 step based program and, I'll ask people, you know, why do you go through the 12 steps? Oh, to get rid, rid of your resentment and your fear and have a spiritual awakening. Yeah, but the, the whole reason I went through a 12-step-based program is so I can take somebody else through the 12 steps. I have to give away what was so freely given to me. And mm -hmm. that's my whole life today is, is just giving back. You know, uh, people say, is there a God? Yeah, there absolutely is something out there. And it was Father's Day this past summer. And I'm sitting out on my deck and my wife says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm waiting for Nick to come visit. She just kind of shakes her head and walks in. <laughs> and not two minutes later, a cardinal flies in my backyard and just sat there. And I said, hey, Nick, and he flies away. So fast forward to August yeah. 1st, uh, the four-year day that Nick passed away. I'm taking a shower and my wife comes and gets me out of the shower. She said, Tim, you need to get outside immediately. She said, a cardinal just flew into our house window. So I went outside, I picked up this cardinal, I sat in my chair, I actually went live on Facebook with it, and this thing sat, and I, I stroked it and patted it for 10 minutes. I took it, I set it in my backyard on a chair, and it flew away. The uh, chances of that are 10 million to one, 
So the signs are there. Yes. And my son, Nick, you know, guides and directs me every day. And I know he's in a better place. But I also tell parents or loved ones that have lost a a child, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, two things are going to happen. You're going to live in the day that they died in that grief and shame, guilt, and remorse and never get out of it. Or you need to celebrate the time that that individual was on earth. And I celebrate the 20 years Nick was on this planet, the 17 years he was in my life, um, because we didn't just get high. He was my son. He was outgoing. He is an avid skateboarder. He was the funniest, most charismatic child, person, friend you would ever meet. And I, I cherish that time Nick had. Yes, he died from a, a drug overdose, an accidental drug overdose, but it could have been a car wreck. It could have been whatever, but I cherish the time he had here. So Right, right. Yeah. And you, yeah, you just you never know what a person's path would have been had they not been in your life, had he been somebody else's son. Who knows? You know, maybe he would have still had the same uh ending, but his journey there could have been really one of, of terror and abuse. I mean, you just don't know. So it's hard. It's, you know, you don't want people to feel like, um, they could have done something differently because maybe they could have, but maybe they actually did do things. You know what I mean? A, A parent in the way that was all meant to unfold. That was better than a potential alternative could have been. Well, you know, I've, I've helped over 40 of Nick's friends or acquaintances get into treatment. About a year after Nick passed away, this kid, Ronnie, reached out to me and he said, I want to meet you. So I met him downtown at Starbucks and he said, let's go for a walk. And we went for a walk and he said, I knew who your son Nick was. We had met once, but I didn't know him well. And he said, after Nick died, I don't know, it's six, nine months later, he said, I'm in Chicago. No, it's, it was a month later because he said, I was at a rave in Chicago and there's a thousand people. And he said, I'm frying on drugs and the music's pumping and the music stops. And the DJ says, we'd like to take a moment of silence for our brother, Nick Isaac Ryan, that passed away from a drug overdose 30 days ago. He said, at that immediate moment, I walked out of the club, I went and checked myself into treatment, and the kid's been sober ever since. Okay, and that, my friends, is all the time we have today. So please make sure you check in next week for the amazing part two of Tim's story. And if you liked what you heard today, please head on over to the we'retalkingshift.com site. I would love to hear your comments, and you can find all of the social links on there. And if you're trying to make some shift happen in your life and you want some private coaching with me, just go ahead and connect with me there or through Facebook, the We're Talking Shift podcast Facebook page. So we will see you for part two next week. Stay feisty, my friends. Go make some shift of your own happen. You too, Gary V. The preceding podcast was a TJ DeSantis production. Comments, questions, and inquiries can be directed to desantisprod at gmail.com.